Sometimes in life, uh, if your life is anything like my life, uh, you get feelings or you're in a situation where you're like, this is what I should do in this situation, right? Uh, and maybe you feel like it's the right thing, or maybe you feel like God's telling you to do something, or uh, maybe there's a person there and you feel like you should talk to them, or uh, there's a situation where you feel like you should help, and sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't, right? And, and when you do, sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it goes horribly, and when you don't, sometimes you feel guilty, and sometimes you're able to shove that guilt down so that you don't feel that anymore, uh, I think this is just, uh, just part of being human, uh, where we have this, here's the thing I'm supposed to do, or here's the thing I should do, and sometimes it happens, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes we feel like God's asking us to do this somehow, like maybe, maybe God isn't saying words to us, but he is like just kind of giving us that opportunity, or you have that impression, like I feel like this is something God wants me to do, and sometimes you follow through with it, and sometimes you don't. And sometimes, it, sometimes you feel like God's telling you to do it, and you try it out, and it goes horribly. And you're like, I don't know what God was thinking. And, and sometimes it goes wonderfully, and you also say, I don't know what God was thinking. Why was he asking me to do these things? Uh, this isn't just, I think, uh, this isn't like a modern invention either. This is something that's been true as long as there's been people on this earth. Here's the thing I should do oh, I'm going to do something else, and sometimes that goes very, very badly. This is the story of the very beginning of the Bible, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. Hey, we can do all these things. Here's the one thing we shouldn't do. Let's try that, all right? And so we end up in these different situations, and we end up with these different feelings, and we're going to spend some time today and over the next couple of weeks kind of walking through that story in the story of the Bible called Jonah, uh, and I kind of subtitled this, God and His Terrible Ideas. What I'm hoping is God doesn't ever read my sermon titles, because uh, I, I want to tell God that I think all His ideas are wonderful. But between us, as long as God's not here, good, I'm glad you got that joke. Uh, uh, but between us, sometimes God has an idea, and we, we genuinely kind of feel like God we appreciate, you know, that you're the creator of the universe and you're all-powerful and all-knowing and very, you know, divine. But your idea is a really bad one uh, because I know how things work on this earth, God. And, you know, you're very old. You're not very hip. You're not on TikTok. You don't even... Uh, neither am I, God. But we, <laughs> but we, we, you know, we just kind of think we can help God out because sometimes he has terrible ideas. Uh, and so Jonah is a character in the Bible. If you're not familiar, you kind of have an advantage. Um, if you are familiar, then you were probably taught Jonah as a, ch as a children's story, uh, and you weren't told kind of some of the background behind it. Like children, Jonah as a children's story is, Jonah didn't listen to God. A whale swallowed him. Then he uh, jumped out of the whale onto the land. Then he did what God told him. Everything worked. Not the case. <laughs> right? It's, it's much more like God called Jonah. Jonah would rather die than do what God said. And so Jonah struggled with suicidal thoughts the rest of his life. We don't teach the children that. Uh, and, and there's a good reason why we don't teach the children that. Because it's, when you take this story and kind of um, like sanitize it, make it child appropriate. Uh, so I apologize if you kept your kids out of kids ministry. Uh, but if you make it uh, child-appropriate, it gets kind of, um, like, acceptable. 
And Jonah as a story isn't trying to be acceptable. It's much more of a story of, a, of like the contrast between the religious ideas of the day, the ideas of power of the day, and the ideas of God's role in our lives and our role in obeying God in those lives. So Jonah is, I'm just background information in case you're not familiar with the Bible, and most people aren't familiar with this part of the Bible, right? Like you read the beginning, then there's a lot of words in the middle, and then you get to the good Jesus-y part, then there's a lot of words, and then there's a crazy end time stuff, right? In the beginning, uh, like the first chunk of big words that you don't normally read is like the prophets. And there's major prophets and minor prophets, all right? And the difference is major prophets talked forever and minor prophets got to the point, all right? So minor prophet books are small. Jonah has like 50-something verses. It's just four chapters, whereas major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah just love the sound of their own voice, all right, and went on and on. And someday I'll have to answer for saying that when I go to heaven and meet Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, and hopefully they're shorter than me and, and not as strong. But, um, but there is, uh, so there's several minor prophets in the Bible, and they're usually addressing like one specific situation, uh, whereas Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel had these many different situations, many different people groups that they were talking to. But Jonah is this, uh, this four chapters, and he's addressing, Jonah lived or like, uh, probably like 790 to 760 was his ministry periods, B.C. So he probably lived around like 800 to 750 uh, B.C., all right? So 750 or 800 years before uh, Jesus rolled around. And, and he was going to uh, prophesy at a time when there was a king named Jeroboam, which means nothing to you, but it was Jeroboam II, which means everything, right? Uh, but he, Jeroboam II was the king in Israel. And the reason that's important, even though you don't know anything about that, probably, is that it's, it puts Jonah in a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific culture. So it's not like Jonah was just shouting words into the wind. He was much more speaking uh, to people who existed, real life people who existed in his culture and in his world in the day. And so Jonah was ministering or doing prophecy in Israel uh, when Jeroboam was king. And, and when Jeroboam was king, the superpowers on earth were Egypt and Assyria. And Israel's main problem was that they were between Egypt and Assyria. If you can imagine if like uh, you were a small country and um, we live in a superpower, so this is Actually, it like kind of takes a step. This is a difficult thing. But imagine you grew up in Canada. And the United States and Russia were pointing missiles at each other all the time. And you were like, you know what would be great? To go sideways with those missiles. Not over the top, right? It's cold up there. And we don't need missiles flying through our air. We're just little Canada minding our own business, right? Uh, so that's the feeling that Israel would have, is we're just kind of trying to live our lives. Could you guys fight in the desert, please? And just kind of leave us alone. But when, when Jeroboam II was king, kind of, kind of a nice time was going on because both Egypt and Assyria were having domestic struggles or internal struggles. Uh, Assyria actually had like this whole violent military coup where this general came in and killed all the royals and said, I'm in charge now. And it just a lot of weird stuff going on in Egypt and Assyria. So Israel was kind of flourishing and kind of having a good time because the superpowers were leaving them alone. 
They, didn't, they had no illusions that they could fight back or that they would be able to match military strength against these very, very large and technologically advanced countries. And so when, they're, uh, when Jonah is speaking to people, uh, he's speaking to people who are uh, positive, who have hope, who feel like God is blessing them, who feel like they are very chosen by God, which is by definition what Israel was, God's chosen people. So Jonah speaks at this time in this place, in this culture, and, and Assyria and Egypt, which are very violent and like uh, bloodthirsty and torturous cultures, uh, especially when they overtook an enemy, they would uh, treat them uh, incredibly violently. So they're minding their own business, and so they feel like this it might be, like maybe this would be the new normal, right? Like you always have that hope, like things are looking up. Maybe there won't be a downturn later. Maybe they won't get their act together, and they'll leave us alone for an extended time. What makes Jonah as a book unique is that it's not a series of long sermons. It's not Jonah standing on the street corner or on a box yelling out, thus saith the Lord. It's much more of a story that happens to Jonah. Uh, so Jonah is actually called by God to do something. He says, no thanks. Things go poorly for him, and he goes and does the thing. It goes wonderfully, and Jonah is totally peeved at that because he thought God had a terrible idea. And if God has a terrible idea, we should not do that idea. And then he does God's terrible idea, and it goes wonderfully, which is terrible. You've probably had that happen at work, right? Your boss has a terrible idea, and you're like, we should not do this, but then you do it, and it ends up your boss is a flaming genius, and that's super annoying, right? <laughs> like, so there is this, like you're, there's this frustration in Jonah, except Jonah's boss was God, and, and that's, you know, some of your bosses think they're God, but it's, there's a tension there. So Jonah is unique among the prophets because it's a story. Now, I want to just do something fun for a second and offend as many people as possible right away. Uh, the main thing that people like to discuss about Jonah is whether it was a whale or not. And that's the least exciting thing about it, all right? So if you thought it was a whale, if you think it's a, like, so you know, at the end of this, like, story I'm going to read, Jonah gets eaten by what the Bible calls a giant fish. If you think it's a whale, can you raise your hand real quick? All right, whale people, okay, put your hand down. Uh, people who are smart and know about whale anatomy and know it's not a whale, you want to raise your hand? There you go. See, now we all hate each other. Uh, and that's the important thing that we want to take away this morning. <laughs> right? Like this, uh, there's a whole argument, like a whole theological argument over whether this story happened or not. Whether it's just a parable that Jonah tells about himself, like the parable of like the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells a story and maybe Jonah's just telling a story to make a point. Never in, like, in the scriptures does it say Jonah is an actual factual thing, like the story of the book of Jonah. And never in the scriptures does it say Jonah was a parable. Never. But what we do really well as Christians is say, if you don't believe like all ten things that we all believe, then you don't get to go to heaven. And, then, and really, Jesus says there's one thing you need to believe in Christ, and the rest of it should be a lot more fun. But we hate fun. We like fighting, right? And so I'm not actually going to engage with the whole argument over whether Jonah was real or not, all right? 
whether it was literal, actual, factual thing that happened, or whether Jonah told a story about something about, and made himself the main character in order to get a point across when he was talking to people that he was talking to. In our culture, whether it's literally, factually, scientifically true or not matters a ton. In older cultures, like around 750 B.C., they don't really care. Like if you tell a story and it's true, then it's true. It's much more like when you, when you hear Alicia Keys sing, it's truth, right? I don't mean to bring up Alicia Keys, but I mean, come on, right? When she sings, she could sing the phone book and you'd be like, I believe every one of those numbers, right? Like that is definitely that person's phone number, without a doubt. It's never been truer in my life. But is it true or not? Like, I don't know. Uh, she sings songs about like how New York is the greatest city in the world. Like, it's good and stuff, but it's cold, right? Like, uh, there, there are other cities that are really warm. So there's, like, there's things where you can discuss factually, is this thing true or not? But that's not the, like, for, uh, sorry, that's not the concern of every culture in history. So if we did a whole sermon where all I talked about was the factual truth of Jonah, the people who originally heard this story would wonder why we wasted 40 minutes because it matters not one bit. Does it matter if it's a fish or not a fish? Uh, I'm sorry, a whale, or it's definitely a fish. A whale or not a whale, right? It doesn't matter very much, like at all, uh, right? And some people say, oh, whales can't swallow people. And it's like, uh, we're going to get to a point, like, in, in a little while. But it's a, so that whale swallowing Jonah, is, or fish swallowing Jonah, is supposed to be a minor miracle to help you believe the major miracle that comes later. Uh, so it, just so that you can grasp onto that, if you're a person that, lo- that you think, if you don't know what you believe about the literal factual truth about Jonah, then you don't know about your salvation, A, we're going to be good friends. Because I love people who believe stuff that much that I don't hold valuable at all. Because it's interesting to me to ask questions. Now, we're only going to be friends for a little while because most people inter- interpret that as me mocking them. Which... Uh, sometimes is true, uh, right? And that's not the best part of me, uh, but sometimes that's true. Uh, so I'm going to read this story to you. If you grew up going to Sunday school and they taught you this story already, or you watched those Veggie Tales movies that did more damage to Christianity than anything, right? Uh, we're all going to get to heaven and there's no vegetables there at all. It's going to be very upsetting. And just, uh, it's, we're trying to take a step past that and make this an adult story about adult things, okay? So I'm going to read the whole story all the way through. This is 750 years before Christ. We're going to put it on the screen. I'm going to read it off the screen, and, uh, and then we'll just kind of talk about it a little bit. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Uh, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, which is a city in Assyria, Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. Now, let me just explain real quick. Tarshish is a town like we don't know where, if it's a town, we don't know where it is. And so historians wonder if that's kind of the word for the deepest seas or the word for the furthest place away, 
uh, like biblical scholars don't know where Tarshish is. Maybe it was in Spain and they're going like all the way across the Mediterranean into where it's just ocean beyond there. They don't know. Uh, so, but he was leaving and he bought the most expensive ticket he could because he wanted to get as far away from God as he could. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Uh, but the Lord hurled down a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. And fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep downstairs in the hold. And so the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted, because it's storming. Get up and pray to your God with a little g. Uh, maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. And so they're all praying to their individual gods. And the crew cast lots, which means they would uh, like throw dice or uh, draw st sticks and whoever got the shortest stick, something like this. The crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm came down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Notice none of those are science questions. Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them they was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it, they groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to stop this storm? And Jonah says, throw me into the sea, and it will, be, uh, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. And so they cried out to Jonah's God, the Lord. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this guy's sin, for this man's sins. And don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. So they're like trying to appease the gods. Then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. Which, side note. Super awkward moment right there, right? Like we pick up Jonah, we throw him in, the waves stop, and there's Jonah bobbing, and all the sailors bobbing, and they're like, do we get him? Like, do we bring him back on the boat now? We don't want to cause the storm to start again? It was just this awkward thing, and they didn't like float away. They'd be like, slowly moving apart, like, I'm really sorry? Like, should we give him a rope? Do you have anything that floats? <laughs> You don't see that in VeggieTales. <laughs> then there's, but wait, there's a moment that changed the awkwardness. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and then they offered a sacrifice to him all right there on their boat, and they vowed to serve him. And now the Lord arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. So as they're floating away, and it's kind of awkward, and Jonah is getting a little more on the horizon, this giant fish takes Jonah. And then the sailors are all kind of like, 
Maybe we should offer a sacrifice to that God. <laughs> like, it's just this terrifying moment that was awkward and just wonderful. This is the story of Jonah and how it starts. And you might be told this as a children's story, like Jonah ran away from God. But you can see the sailors in this story are treating this whole world like it's a religious world. If something goes bad in their world, the assumption is the gods are angry. If you're a person uh, that, okay, I'm just going to use the words climate change, and hopefully we divided just as badly when I use that word over the whale and not a whale thing. But if you're wondering about climate change, uh, and you're like, I don't believe the science, maybe it's because the gods are angry. That was a joke. Okay, but, uh, <laughs> but there is, I, I don't know anything about science and I don't care. What I'm saying is, well, I care a bit. Uh, what I'm saying is, we are looking at science. There is science that proves it. There's science that doesn't prove it. The sailors would say, are the gods mad or not? Because if the temperature is changing, or if the climate is changing, or there's a storm, or uh, the crops aren't growing, or the rain isn't falling, or the river's running dry, or I stub my toe, or I'm not getting sleep at night, or my kids are rebelling, it's the gods. There's something about the gods that they're upset with something. And so how do we appease the gods? And the world that they lived in was ruled by the gods. And if they're in the water, in the ocean, in the sea, then the gods that they need to worry about are their family gods from back home, that maybe they brought a statue with them or some kind of a trinket or an idol, and the god of the sea. And if the sea is going crazy, then the sea god must be upset. So Jonah leaves what God is calling him to do. And I want to, well, we'll just rewind a bit. We're going to get back to those sailors and why they're throwing things into the sea in a second. But the reason for the storm isn't the sea god. The reason for the storm is Yahweh, the god of the sea and of the dry land. So Jonah is called by God to do something that's a terrible idea. Jonah is called to go and minister to the people that his people would dislike the most. Jonah is called to go and warn the people who hate the people of God the most. Jonah is go, called to go and call people to repentance who people in Israel would have been racist against, would have been prejudiced against, would have used, like, would have lumped all of those people together. If you wanted to find the people group that made life hard or made life difficult, it's the Assyrians. And if we go to the great city of Nineveh and warn them that Jonah's actually being called to, like, do something that, that, that an, a person wouldn't want to do. Like, the question needs to be, right, like, why does Jonah run away from God's idea? And something in Jonah thinks this idea is a terrible idea. I shouldn't call it God's idea. I should call it God's command. Why would Jonah run away from God's command? And it might be because he was scared, right? Like, if I go down to that place where they're violent, where they're aggressive, where they torture, where they capture, and we are two countries that go to war with each other, like, it's hard for us to even fathom this because we don't have this exact kind of thing going on. 
But imagine going into maybe a closed country that hates people from your country and hates Christianity and has outlawed Christianity, and you're supposed to go into their biggest city and put a soapbox on the corner and yell at everyone to warn them to turn to Jesus. There would be like some awkward like fear that would go into that. But I don't think Jonah is scared. Jonah demonstrates a lot of calm. Maybe he was. Maybe that's a part of it. But there's another part of it uh, where Jonah knows God and knows that the Jewish people are God's chosen people and kind of likes that and kind of doesn't want God to be merciful to people that don't deserve it, to people who are the problem in life. And why would God give them the solution when they themselves are the problem? They aren't people that can be uh, won over. They aren't people that can be redeemed. They are the problem for the people of God. They're a problem to be solved, not a people to be reached. If Jonah goes there, Jonah like goes there, he's kind of acquiescing or he's kind of admitting, uh, saying those people matter to Jesus, or he wouldn't say Jesus, those people matter to Yahweh God. And so it's kind of a protest move by Jonah of saying this might be what God wants to do, but I'm not down with it. Like I'm not down with what God wants to do. I'm going my own direction. I'm doing my own thing over here because this is a terrible move by God. And it would actually be terrible, like it would be terrible for Jonah's prophecy career. Like if Jonah is doing good things. He's mentioned in the book of Kings, Second Kings, in, with King Jeroboam, like he's a big deal. Jonah is a big deal in his time. And now he's gonna suddenly be on the side of the people who everybody hates the most. Jonah's called to give everything up, to go over there. And maybe he doesn't want God to be kind to people and invite more people to be in the people of God because he has a good thing going. We don't relate to this because we say it differently. We say, uh, I really, uh, I like a small church. Like, I, it's, it's a kind of an awkward thing to say. I like a, a small church where I know everybody. Or I, I want a church with people that are all like me. It's kind of an, an awkward thing because then the, you get together in a small church and you say, let's reach people for Jesus. But not too many, okay? Like maybe one this decade. And let's make sure they're just like us. All right, they're, you can see this happening in Western Christianity all over the place. Because, like, I'm not, like, this, this sounds more critical. Mm, no, this sounds very critical, and it probably should be. But the, part of the reason is because it's way more difficult to live with people that aren't like you. Imagine how difficult it is for someone like Jonah to go to this city Nineveh and tell them to follow his God, to tell them his God loves them, to tell them they can live in a different way that is fulfilling in Yahweh God. That'd be a difficult sell. It's much better to go to the people who already know, to go to the Jewish people, go to the Hebrew people. Listen, we just need to do this a little better. 
we're going to do more Bible studies during the week. We think that's really important. Let's do that. And so you get a church that's doing more and more Bible study, that's mastering everything that the Bible says and is completely useless evangelistically because living with people that aren't as Christian as you, that aren't uh, the same convictions as you, is difficult. This is why I ask the whole whale and fish thing, because there are churches that build themselves on this trash, sorry, on these divisions. <laughs> that was my opinion right there. Uh, but they build, these, they build groups of people based on divisions, on divisions that don't matter ultimately and eternally. Now, it might matter in an anecdotal way. It might matter in an interesting way. It might matter even in a minor theological way. But overall, when we start majoring in these minor disagreements, what we're doing is building or attempting to build homogeneous units of people so that we can avoid any kind of conviction or any kind of growth. Because difference and diversity of opinions and diversity of thoughts, as long as they're still orthodox and biblical, helps us to grow. We sharpen each other. But when we just try to identify a people group that are, is all identical to me, then we don't grow. This is why, not every week, but every now and then, you should go, man, I did not appreciate what James said. Not every week. Like, if it's every week, then I'm probably being, you know, a jerk, and you should be like, James should get more sleep, right? <laughs> but every now and then, you should feel like, I'm not sure about what James said. I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure I want to do that. I think that's a bit of a jerk thing to say. And every now and then, I should think that about you. <laughs> like, I said a good sermon, and they did not think it was good. <laughs> like, I, I killed that sermon, like maybe the best sermon ever given on that scripture in the history of humanity. And three of them fell asleep. <laughs> Every now and then we should have tension, not overwhelming tension, but growing tension. This is why we do things in our lives. Like you run a little further, lift a little more, talk about things in a relationship that are a little bit deeper level. You don't go all the way deep. You don't lift the heaviest thing. You don't run an ultra marathon tomorrow, but you stretch yourself and stretch yourself and stretch yourself in relationships and your faith grows. So Jonah runs away from God for maybe some variety of reasons, but he ends up preaching to these sailors unintentionally. This is like in my list of favorite things about God. This is way up there that God even uses us when we are disobeying him, that God uses the most unlikely people and the most unlikely prophets to reach the most unlikely groups. If you see when, they, when Jonah begins interacting with the sailors, can we skip to the next uh, slide? The, uh, the captain goes down to him, there's a, sh a, a storm, they're throwing all of their cargo overboard. They're throwing it overboard to lighten the ship, but it's also an offering to the sea gods, so you know that's like the, the things they would throw over would be the things that they thought the sea god wanted. Does he want this? Nope. Does he want this? Nope. Uh, so Jonah's asleep downstairs. He goes downstairs and said, the, the captain of the ship, they're all praying to their own gods, and he asked Jonah to pray to his god. 
They're throwing cargo over. They're being religious. And then they cast lots, which is also a superstitious or religious way to find something out. This isn't like you don't, we would do an interrogation, right? We would gather the evidence, ask people, they throw dice. First person to get a six must be the bad one. <laughs> this is a crazy game, isn't it? But they believe that the gods controlled the way the dice rolled. And so the gods would tell them by the throwing of the dice, I'm sh- I don't know if they had dice, but whoever they cast lots, so that they could identify Jonah. And then they ask him religious questions. So these sailors are religiously aware of how the world works around them or how they believe the world works around them. And they are asking religious questions of the prophet of God who wants nothing to do with talking about God right now. Who are you? What do you do for a living? Where are you from? And they ask where are you from because the gods are all localized, right? You have the God of the nation of Israel, the gods of the nation of Assyria. The Egyptians had their own gods. And Jonah answers, I'm Hebrew. I worship the Lord. And that would be Yahweh, what he said, uh, uh, God's identifying name for himself. The God of heaven. So he says, my God lives far away from here. And he made the sea and the land. So when he says, I'm a Hebrew, I worship the Lord, he's beginning to preach to them because then he says, this is who God is. He made the land, like I believe that my God made the land and the sea. So you might have a God of the sea and a God of the dry land and a God of that sea and a God of that land. I serve the God above all of those other gods. I serve the God that made the sea and the land. Not just the God of the sea, but the God who made the sea. And so they get scared because Jonah's God sounds more powerful than their God. And they hear he's running away from the Lord and they're like, well, that's right away. Like these sailors know enough to say, it's a stupid idea to run away from your God because you just told me your God made all the land and all the water. So how do you run away from your God? If your God just lived in Israel, then you have a genius plan. Get out of Israel. Uh, This is similar to people who think like, um, well, someone told my kid one time, like, you you can't run in church, right? You can't run in church. When we were young, we met in a church that had a building, that old-fashioned concepts. But uh, (laughs) you can't run in church. And so you know, when I see your children running in the hallway, I stop them and say, you can't run in church unless you're screaming with your hands up. And they're like, oh, okay. And they begin to do that because the pastor told them, right? And, and it's, so that's a rule now. Uh, so I'm just kind of helping you parent. But, <laughs> but there is this, like, that we have these rules that you can't do this in church because we think God is here. But once we get in our car, God leaves us alone and we drive over there. It's kind of an awkward thing because it's, we don't meet in a church building, and so we're confused as to where God is. And then we say, God is the God who made all of the seas and all of the land. So the land you live on, that's God's land. The place that you are walking around, living in, the place that you're running away from God in, that's God's land. And so it becomes impossible to run away from God, and the sailors see this, and the sailors are like, you're an idiot. You're the worst prophet ever. So how do we get rid of this storm? And Jonah's answer is to throw me into the sea 
which they would interpret as offer me to your sea god or maybe offer me to this Yahweh God because they don't know anything religiously about the Yahweh God. They don't know what kind of sacrifices he likes. They haven't read the Old Testament. They don't know the, you know, the grain offerings and the meat offerings. They don't know all of this stuff. And so they're like, your God likes it when we throw prophets in the ocean? That does not sound like a good religion. We are, I don't think we're going to do that. Let's try rowing. So these religious men, like if, if we're looking for the religious people in the story, it's not Jonah. Jonah doesn't understand even though he preaches, my God owns everything everywhere, he's trying to run away from that God, and the sailors have fear of the Lord and obey the things that Jonah tells them. They try to row, it doesn't work, and then they pray to this God that they just heard of, assuming that he can hear them, pray that he won't hold their, this man's death against them, and throw Jonah over the side of the boat. And then the waves go away, and so right away, they're like, let's offer sacrifices. Which is an awkward thing because they don't know how to offer sacrifices. But they would have some kind of sacrificial offering system on their boat so that they could offer sacrifices maybe to the sea god or the wind god if they needed the sails to fill. And so they're like, well, let's offer a sacrifice to this god he called Yahweh. What is he like? I don't know. He probably likes music, right? All right, let's sing. No, he doesn't like that song, right? <laughs> like, all right, he probably likes barbecue because all the gods like barbecue. Like, we're going to burn some stuff and blood's going to be flying places. And like, this is probably what God likes. It's kind of a, a weird thing because this, the first Assyrian worship service was completely organic. These like sailors are out there. Uh, we don't know that they're Assyrian sailors, sorry. The first ocean-going worship service was just made up on the fly. And then probably the next time, they were like, hey, we have to do it exactly the same, and then exactly the same. And then they got a new young captain who's like, let's make it hip, right? Let's wear flannel and all that. And they're like, no, 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 God doesn't like that. We have to do it this way. There is, like, there's this whole religious system that grows on this boat because the sailors become God-fearers. The sailors become worshipers of Yahweh God. They don't even know that Yahweh God doesn't want them to worship their other gods. They don't have an Old Testament. They don't have anything. The only source they have of information, they just threw over the side and a fish ate them. And they're like, now we worship the God who wants us to throw his people over the side and eat them with a fish. And we're very scared of this God for good reason. But this is, there's like, this is, a veiled contemporary criticism that is leveled at the church today of saying there's more kindness, more grace, more love, more accepting, more generosity outside of the church than inside the church. And that criticism rings true a lot of the time. It's not something that I think we need to try to dodge or try to avoid. It's something we need to admit and try to get better at. Jonah says, yep, you guys understand this better than me. I think it'd be best if you threw me over the side of the boat. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should get your non-Christian friends to throw you in the water. But there, there is a time for admitting, yeah, there's times when even non-Christians are doing things that are more gracious 
than we are. And that's tough. And because there's, I'm not saying that we just, just throw all of God's law out or God's character out or stuff like that, but, but there is like this feeling sometimes that criticisms of the church, yeah, on that one, you're kind of right. And we're just going to own that and we're going to try to get better tomorrow. And for Jonah, what that means is a fish swallows him and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. So for Jonah, repentance smells terrible, is dark, is cold, is uncomfortable. It's not like the old Pinocchio movies where you're like, oh, I'm going to have a little fire and enjoy myself down here. The fish is probably swallowing other strange things over the three days. Or there's other things there already, maybe another prophet. I'm just, that's a joke. Don't think that. That's not true at all. That's definitely not true. That was 100% a joke. That should be heresy. But, <laughs> but there is this uh, feeling that sometimes we get, I think maybe as individuals, but also as the church at large, that people outside shouldn't criticize us, or people outside don't know anything. We can't learn from them. And maybe there are times when we can. Maybe there are times when we can grow and God can even teach us uh, from people outside of the church or outside of our group. It's kind of this thing that we struggle with where we know that Jesus is the model and I want to live like Jesus and we find ourselves continually falling short. Continually not quite living up to it. The Bible talks about this. This is uh, in the book of Romans, the, Paul the Apostle says this, and he talks about not living up to his standards. This is how it starts. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. That's Romans 7 in the message uh, paraphrase. Uh, he says, it happens so regularly that I don't live up to Christ's standard that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. I love his word, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? This is the real question. This is the Apostle Paul who writes most of the New Testament. Like, if there's a good Christian in the world, it's probably the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. And he says, I struggle to do what God tells me, and I struggle so much, it's downright predictable. That there's, I, my whole self wants to do what God wants me to do. But there's obviously these little parts that say, hey, you know it would be a good idea? Let's get on a boat and go to Tarshish. And you don't even know where Tarshish is, but suddenly you find yourself on this boat in a storm going the wrong direction. And you're like, I don't even know how I got here. And maybe the solution is good, throw me in the water. <laughs> but these parts of us take over. These parts of us that aren't surrendered to God, take over, and it's predictable. It's, it's so frustrating and so annoying. If anything, that, that section, that little middle in, uh, in Romans chapter 7 should be encouraging to us, right? Because if you're here and you're like, oh, I've never disobeyed God, I've done everything God's ever said, then you might not relate. <laughs> you also might struggle with lying to yourself. Because I think it's a common thing. It might be big things. It might be little things. But we're all faced with these little individual decisions. 
And we want to look at a guy like Jonah and be like, what a screwball. God told him, go to Nineveh. You go to Nineveh. But God tells us every day, every moment, live like this, live like this, live like this. And we run away. And our running away might not be that dramatic. We might not get on a boat and go as far as we can. But we avoid. We miss opportunities. We tell God that his idea is a terrible idea. We think that we can get far away from God and things will go better for us. And the wonderful thing about the story of Jonah is that God is the God of all the land and all the sea. And if you find yourself very, very far from God this morning, it's a feeling that you have. The truth is that God is very, very close to you because there is nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And that's not something I made up. Paul, who wrote this, also said that in the New Testament. That there's nothing too tall, nothing too far, nothing too dangerous, nothing too scary that can separate you from the love that God has for you. And the moment of turning back to God is as simple as saying, let's throw this whole stupid thing in the ocean and see what happens. Let's follow what God wants to say. And you might find yourself in a proverbial fish or in a metaphorical fish in a weird situation. But that turning yourself over to God and turning your ways over to him is the beginning of God being able to do the things that he wanted to do that gave the reason for him calling you in the first place. We're going to pray together, and I'm just going to ask you, like, I'll pray a bunch of words, but if you want to talk to God on your own, and maybe there's things in your life that you're saying, this is where I'm running away right now. Like, I think God has this terrible idea and this terrible idea. Maybe, maybe just telling God you think it's a terrible idea would be a good step. Uh, maybe God doesn't need to throw you in the ocean yet. Maybe that's the next step. But having that conversation and realizing the world around you and realizing that God is there in the world around you, no matter how far you think you are from God, is a great step uh, to be able to say that, God, I'm here. I don't necessarily like where I am. And maybe you don't like where I am either, but this is where we're at. And just admitting it and having that conversation is a good start. So let's, let's pray together. Well, let's stand because we're going to worship too. We're going to sing together in worship. But I want to pray. God, all over this room, there are people like me who find Jonah inside of us, who find ourselves, like I, I want to follow you, God, 100%, who find ourselves loving Jesus, loving the scriptures, loving the church, and yet there are parts of us that appear to not be convinced and those parts take over sometimes. And we let that happen. Or we maybe even enjoy when those parts that don't trust you take over in our lives. And it's predictable. It's so annoying. And so we pray, God, not that, like, it's kind of a secondary prayer that you would save us from that. But we would also admit, Lord, that this has been a thing that even Paul, who wrote the New most of the New Testament, struggled with. And so, God, I'm going to pray primarily, first of all, that you would allow us to sense your presence wherever we are. Some of us in this room would feel very far from you today. 
And that might be our fault. That might be someone else's fault. Some of us in this room have things that we need to repent of and turn away from, things that we need to, t- to ask your forgiveness for because we've allowed ourselves to take control and rule over our own lives when we should be living in obedience to you. Save us, Lord, even from ourselves, from those parts of ourselves that take over those unconvinced, unrepentant, unconverted parts of us. And then, Lord, allow those parts to be transformed, take our hearts and give us new hearts that are more and more in the image of your Son. We pray this and we worship you because we believe that you are the God of everywhere, all the land, all the sea, the God of the world around us and the God of our hearts. And you can do miracles, even in us. Amen.